And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. I'm, I'm Michael Campbell with the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, and I am delighted that we can uh, delve in uh, a very exciting recording that dates back at least to 1926, possibly earlier, what we believe may be uh, the very uh, earliest extent Adventist recording, audio recording of any kind. So. Uh, and I'm delighted also to have with me two very special guests, Dr. Benjamin Baker, who has been a specialist in Adventist studies, has been writing about, uh, we were just talking earlier about uh, black Millerite preachers, uh, has an incredible experience and expertise in black Adventism, and uh, is a graduate of uh, Howard University. I'm also joined by David Williams, who is a professor at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University, uh, also comes with a wealth of expertise in uh, the history and development of the liturgy, teaches that, has some expertise both uh, in graduate studies as well as in his professional career. So welcome, uh, Ben and David, to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. Yes, thank you. So happy to be here. This is a great honor, privilege, and looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Michael. So we want to go ahead and delve into this just a little bit. Uh, I've got here, uh, obviously our listeners are going to be listening to this, but this this amazing recording that I picked up uh, about 20 years ago, and I couldn't believe it. And this last year, I, I just put online some with some friends, uh, saying, you know, I'd really like to be able to listen to it and not actually be able to, you know, to have it professionally conserved, uh, this, this old record uh, published by Columbia. And it has on each side, it says Seventh-day Adventist Choir on Jordan's stormy banks we stand. And on the reverse side, it says, take thy burden to the Lord. And, you know, I wanna, you know, spend a little bit of time unpacking the significance of that. But before we do, uh, Ben, would you just play those recordings for us? Here is the first recording or the side one recording. It's on Jordan's Stormy Banks We Stand. I want to ask thee this evening for a special prayer. On the man that's catching a record for you. And oh Jesus, make him a man of God. Hold him in your merciful hand. Amen. On Jordan's storms the bank I stand and cast the wood for life. On Thank you, 
Now that we've listened to that recording, uh, you know, Ben and David, tell me some of your initial reactions when when you first heard this and, and the significance of this for our Adventist understanding. I was elated to hear this recording on a number of levels. First is it made history come alive. You know that okay. for historians, maybe history is a little more animated than it is for other people because we almost need to get into it to get others into it. But I think even for us, it's mostly ink on a page and our imagination. And so to hear this recording from the 1920s, which we still consider historical, if something's in the 60s, 1960s, eh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like 50 plus years old, but it's kind of historical. 70s, we were kind of alive then. 80s, we know that because we lived through it. But this is the 1920s. And to hear real people, real voices, that was very remarkable to me. That's just my uh, very visceral reaction. On another level, though, these are Black Adventists. And as you know, with American history and with Adventist history as well, oftentimes African-Americans are not included in the histories. Now, that we're working on remediating that. You know, more than ever, there are uh, histories on Black people. There are people's histories. But to think that the first extent Adventist recording is of a black choir and black people, that is extremely significant as well. I, I, as a black Adventist historian, I, I deal with a lot of things I think that some others may not be attuned to. There is an idea floating around and even back then it was it was in the air and that is that Adventism sort of takes you from your blackness. Mm. Okay. Uh, not so much well, well this is a part of it as well and I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully but Adventism tended to be cerebral. Uh, they say no sooner was someone baptized and they went to school. Mm -hmm. 
No sooner were they baptized Adventists than they went to school. And we know the history of African-Americans in, in America that for a large part of our history, it was illegal to learn how to read. And that when these different movements came up, like uh, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, 1904, the 1906, Pentecostalism, Southern Baptists, there was a notion that authentic black religion had to be emotional. That emotions was a major part, uh, perhaps the dominant part of any black religion. And so if it was not mostly emotional or didn't have a huge emotional element in it, it was seen as not as black. That's a major, that's a major thing going around, um, especially in the late 1800s, early you know, 1900s. And so these are black Adventists and it's obvious from the recording that there is a deeply soulful and emotional element. And, and, and by the way, I just wanna say right now that I don't subscribe to a dichotomy between cerebral and emotionalism. So I don't subscribe to that, but there was that notion that Adventism separated you from that soul, from that emotion, um, especially with respectability politics. And so this recording, obviously they are in touch with their souls. No sooner can you listen to it than you know these are black people, okay? And as a black man, I'll say that, because maybe for a white person say, like, oh, you're racist. No, you know, when you listen to this, you know they're black. You know they're black. And so from the yes to the melisma in the voice to the style of singing, um, these aren't Negro spirituals per se, but they sound like Negro spirituals. It sounds like there's some suffering with, with yeah. the music, with the singing. And so those are some of the initial things that jumped out to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, boy, there's a lot to say. I think that's really, really insightful. And thank you, Ben, for sharing from your experience, too. I mean, clearly, I am not from that experience. And so I'm not qualified to speak from that. Uh, it, it's it's really, really engaging. The, the one that uh, we listened to on Jordan's Stormy Banks, uh, this one particularly sounds old. Um, I have I have yet to find a published melody for it, and it sounds a little bit like lining out, but it's also together in an organized harmony. I, I would like to find this music, but that one especially sounds. Um, um, we, if you will, there's like two types of soulfulness in these songs. Uh, the the first one sounds like the really old way, and then the second song is Tinley's gospel song, and in the new gospel style, um, I was just reading this song he composed in 1916, and so this is a if you will a contemporary song of the day, and what is intriguing for me. Um, in my study into black and white Adventist worship and music is trying to situate these practices. Um, this, what's so exciting to me is to actually hear it. Michael 
tantalized me with this recording dangling a carrot at david i have this recording and i was doing my research and uh, well we didn't have it yet we couldn't listen to it and to finally put ear on this uh it's really something and it certainly informs my understanding of the history to know that that blacks in the south black adventists in the south were doing these two types of music because in context you have other churches up north that seem like they're not doing this music like the the big adventist black adventist church in in harlem the ephesus church i don't know that they would touch this um, from the interviews that I conducted and, and other research that's that's been done. And certainly they have a black experience too, but that would be interesting to hear, hear from you. Uh, were there some politics going on? Is it just preference? Are these regional preferences? Um, what do we make of, of these differences in black Adventism then? Yeah, good questions. I... <laughs> Mike, Michael, you want me to speak to that? Yeah, please do. Yeah, David. David raises it, and he he's smiling because he, <laughs> this is this is a David touched on a couple of things. First, the blacks in the north were blacks too, and I'm telling you, there is a competition. Not maybe not a competition. But could, could you just, just could I also insert, though, Ben, whites are whites in the north, too. And so there's also racism and prejudice wherever you go, even oh, if yeah. blacks were free in the north. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but something still rages today. And that is the notion of black particularity. That is what is truly black. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of terms like. Coon, Sambo, Uncle Tom, mm -hmm. um, House Negro, Field Negro. Mm -hmm. This is about black particularity. It's saying you're not truly black. I recall Chris Rock saying something that made me laugh. Is this a this is an Adventist uh, podcast, Michael? Can I mention Chris Rock or no? You can edit this out if you need to. But anyway, Chris Rock said that. If I'm Matthew Henson and I'm going to the Antarctica or the North Pole, that's the black experience because I'm black. Right. Even though black person, even though no black person has been there before, that's the black experience. So whatever I do as a black person is the black experience. Yes. But there is a battle, mm -hmm. a, a, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, of northern blacks and southern blacks mm -hmm. about what being truly black is. Many Northern Blacks, and David, David uh, uh, alluded to this, are ashamed of slavery mm -hmm. and ashamed that that was even a part of our history. And they're like, well, we have a lineage that goes back where no one was enslaved. You know, we, we never had to go through that. And that's a badge of honor. And these Northern churches are staying away from that slave stuff, first of all, because some of them didn't have that lineage. I mean, I think of Ephesus. Yeah. Um, Maybe if J.K. Humphrey say was the pastor at the time, uh, he was Jamaican. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was slavery there, but he wouldn't necessarily resonate with mm. black Southern slavery. Yes. And so is th there is this whole argument of 
um, what is what is authentically black. And so in the North, they would stay away from these sort of uh, visceral, soulful slave songs because that's not them. We're above that. Um, we were never subject to that. Yeah. So there is a there is a, a, a serious uh, rift there. Now, something that's interesting with that, just to divide the North too, just briefly, um, in my interview with Jim North, who who is a black Adventist musician, Adventist and military chaplain, and he was he's emeritus professor here in my department at the seminary in Christian ministry, now practical and applied theology. Jim had memories of of Adventist worship, black Adventist worship in New York City broadly. And he, as a child, went to church uh, at Ephesus, and he noted the distinct difference there versus his uh, father's church um, in one of the other boroughs. And it was a storefront church, the other church, and they, he says definitively that they sang black gospel, which they were not singing at Ephesus. And so you have this high church and low church um, sensibilities within black Adventism within just a, you know, relatively few miles of each other in the north. Yeah. So I want to throw in and complicate things here just a little bit. <laughs> I, I was watching the PBS uh, uh, documentary series that, you know, on the black experience, it's, uh, and it's really superb. But they have this whole section in the video on Columbia Records and other recording companies, but especially Columbia, producing these race records in the 1920s. Uh, and, and you know, what, do you see this? Is this one of those race records? Because it sure looks like it to me from what I can tell. And then secondly, I've been doing more research on this record as, uh, as all of us have been. Uh, tantalized by this, this uh, being able to hear and this historical uh, thing here, but but I've got it now in good historical evidence that that this was actually recorded in New York. So it's an Atlantic choir, but they are actually recording this in New York. So it's a little unclear to me whether they traveled up there from Atlanta to do the recording in the studio there, or could this be a, a group of Adventists who've moved up from Atlanta? who are at one of these churches that you're talking about, David, in the boroughs, and I have no idea which one, uh, but maybe we've been looking at this in the wrong spot because we've been trying to identify um, Atlanta. Yeah. Clearly they're from Atlanta that's identified yeah. as such, but it's being recorded in New York City. So I still haven't figured out the mystery to that, but is this a race record? I, I'm just throwing this out there because you know uh, that's the fun of historical research is we're still unpacking and digging, diving in and learning new things about these things. Yeah, I would Ben, you've talked to to me before, to us before about race records. Could you just share a little bit more light on what that is for our viewers listeners? Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, race records really were the genesis, if you will, a lot of uh, musical scholars have identified them as really the start of the American pop music machine. And of course, many musical genealogists will trace the birth of really all American pop music to uh, Negro spirituals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they say this is like the genealogy. Mm -hmm. 
Negro spirituals, blues, rhythm and blues, and then from that country, folk, you name it, into the 30s and 40s with Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia mm -hmm. Jackson. This was the popularization and the actually putting on wax of Negro spirituals turned gospel. And then from there with Rosetta Tharp and a lot of, you know, Rosetta Tharp, she's up there singing gospel music and she's playing the guitar. And then you hear like a lick of the guitar, like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this, this is the birth of rock and roll. And so they call her the, with the godmother of rock mm -hmm. and roll. Um, and so from there, it's, and, and Mike, uh, David, as you know, these musical distinctions are rather brittle, but there's soul that comes from yeah, gospel. Yeah. And of course, rhythm and blues, and then rhythm and blues becomes rock and roll. And, you know, now you're in the 1950s mm -hmm. with disc jockeys and, you know, people like Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And then... Elvis and Bill Haley and the Comets bring it to a mm -hmm. white audience. Of course, Elvis comes up in Memphis and he's hearing black spiritual music all, all along, you know, black, black hymns and gospel all along. And he, um, he's very forthcoming, forthright, in saying that that's where he got it from. He was on Beale Street. He was in the black churches in Memphis, and that's where he got the sensibility. But these race records in the 1920s and 30s were just little short records like the ones that I just played uh, and or, or the you know the the ones from the recording that Michael found, and these were like three to four minutes. Some were longer, and they would at first sell these to black people. They were marketed and sold to black people, and Columbia was one of the largest, I think, one of the first and the largest. And they were sold to black people, and really from there, it it caught on and got bigger. And they began in the forties and fifties. They began marketing this to, you know, with the rise of radio and the disc jockeys. They made it palatable to whites. And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, to answer Michael's question, I think that this is definitely a race record. I mean, this is Columbia and everything is definitely a race record. And I, I, I was looking at the other race records. And when it says made and patented in U.S. Yeah. January 21, 13 and May 22, 23, Michael, it seems like a lot of Columbia records say Yeah, that's what I'm finding, too. Yeah, so I don't think that that has anything to do with the date of when this was uh, produced okay. or, or when it came out. I think the 1926 date is a good okay. one. So that was like a generic, this is the copyright. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, we've been kind of debating this for a little bit because there are these uh, mm -hmm. imprints on there of copyright. But yeah, in some you know, some additional research that I've been doing about where it was recorded also pinpoints or is looking at that date, 1926, as the recording date. So uh, I'm feeling more confident about that too, uh, Ben. So, I, you know, this is one of those things that historians, we, we, we do research, but we're always looking for the best evidence, right? So we're always questioning these things. Do we really got, do, do we understand this correct, you know? And, and so we learn from an, one another and stretch each other. So that's one of those ongoing debates, but I think we're we're getting some resolution on that. Well, you know, a couple things come to mind that that could situate yeah. it in New York, and okay. connect to the the race records. This is uh -huh. all very. Uh, my word that I was thinking of earlier. This is spicy. I, I like the drama of this as we're putting it together. See, history is exciting. Uh, yeah. The discovery of learning, that. Uh, about this time is the great renaissance renaissance in 
um, African-American community and the Great Migration. And so we know that um, it is people from the South bringing explicitly Tinley's music to the North that creates a flourishing of this black gospel style, this golden age, if you will, uh, that, that's going to come on. And so it helps situate that. The one question that I have, it, it certainly would have been a great expense to go simply to record. The migration simply helps me understand that as of bringing our southern community together to perform our music. But there's this Brother Hubbard who's doing the prayers, right? And right. Um, we've talked earlier, I wonder if one of you can shed a little bit more light on that because Brother Hubbard was an elder um, at the Berean Church in Atlanta. Yes, I I think we're, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out who okay. exactly he was, David. Um, but I think that something you touched on, two things you touched on is to me, you said that it, it situated it for you. And I really resonate with that because two of the biggest realities of black life during this time is the great migration. And maybe not two of the biggest realities, but with the rise of the race records, sort of the commodification of black music and the maybe the globalist, the, mm -hmm. the start of the globalization. Um, it's a small start, but then it picks up. So when you talk about the great migration, this is something that, and before this, before this started, we were talking mm -hmm. about contextualization and situate, situating things. We, as Adventists, are explicitly and blatantly not worldly. We say that we don't want to be worldly. We don't want to be, maybe not secular, but we don't want to be worldly. That was a bad, I, I remember when I was coming up, some people, some Adventists would call other people worldlings. And that always struck me as the worst insult you could ever say. It's like, you're a worldling. I mean, that, that's like, whoa, that sounds highly offensive. You're a worldling. And so we distance ourselves from the world. And so I think a lot of times that Adventist historians and, and just Adventists, lay Adventists, to understand Adventist history, you need to go back mm -hmm. and remember that we were a part of the mm -hmm. world. And, and, and this is not evil or sinful. It, it, black Adventists in the South were subject to all of the racial terrorism and the slights and, and the prejudice that other blacks were. And they wanted to leave for better places, as, as Isabella Wilkerson says, the warmth of other suns in, in her book on the Great Migration. And so I can see them migrating to New York City, even if it didn't happen, this is what was happening with, mm -hmm. with Blacks and Black yeah. Adventists at the time. And so, as you said, David, this really situates it for me as well and sorts of sort of puts that reality on wax. Just, with just the black one other comment experience. I'd make on on that is this renaissance is this flowering or going back to recognizing uh, black identity. It's this beginnings in America to recognize that black is beautiful. And while that's going to come up later, some decades later in full force, 
Um, I see in the history we've told here today that in uh, claiming um, the black experience of the South, it is solidifying and promulgating this black consciousness in in the gospel style and some sort of type of spiritual style of the uh, take thy burden and not sorry not take thy burden um, on Jordan's stormy banks and and yet at the same time in the 20s and then especially in the 30s you have other black churches like uh, Ephesus that are identifying with a lot of white music but they, as we said, they have the black experience and they, they would say, well, we have to do it better and we can do it better because we're black. And so there is this flowering of black consciousness in a preservation and advancement of, of some of their own and in some of the other shared musical expressions. So I want to come back to you because for the sake of time, we're going to have to kind of start wrapping things up here a bit. Um, let's, let's start kind of framing this a little bit. You know, what are some of the lessons and applications that we take away from all of this and from these recordings uh, for, for Adventism today, for Adventist liturgy today, uh, for race relations in the church, you know, all of these different dimensions? Um, reflect for me uh, for just a moment how we can kind of take this home a little bit and, and make it practical. Okay, Michael, I guess I'll go first. I grew up during the liturgy battles, the, the worship battles of the 80s and 90s, and it was fierce, especially in the black church. I don't know how it was in the white church. I think that it was the same in the white church, if I can, if I can make a binary, because in the white church, mm -hmm. you had the celebration movement. And so I was in Southern California at the time where it may have, that may have been the genesis of it. I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar of the celebration movement, but in Southern, Cal in Southern California, you had these church services where they were raising hands. These are, these are white led churches, although a lot of them were diverse. So they were raising hands. They were singing music on a prompter. Now, all of this sounds like old hat. But in the early 90s, I think yeah. that it was first kind of percolating. What you see now, that's just the norm. So the music was on the tele was on a big screen and the pastor would kind of walk in in casual gear. Sometimes in California, there were shorts involved. OK, the pastor wearing the shorts and a T-shirt and you had the praise teams and all that stuff. You guys remember this? Like I said, it's old hat Very now. Very Praise teams. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But in the and it's 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 really crazy. What was controversial back then is mm -hmm. now you wouldn't even blink an eye at it. But there was all of this going on in the black church, but it was more pitched. And this was around worldly music yeah. infiltrating the Black Adventist Church. I even recall one of my friends, uh, mm. uh, Harold Lee, saying that neo Pentecostalism will mm. be the death of Black Adventism. So you, you, your, your listeners can think about that. And some black Adventists are like, that's been fulfilled in your ears. Yeah. Okay, that's been fulfilled already. Um, but that's, that's probably for another podcast, Michael. But 
So coming up during these worship wars, there, there, was, there was so much behind the worship wars. What is worldly? Uh, can, you know, is, is, can a beat in and of itself, David, be sinful? Just, just the beat, just the rhythm, just the melody. Can it be sinful? Is jazz, what about jazz? What about bringing in R&B in the church? And behind all of this was what is authentically black? That has been a major trope and consideration in the black church yeah. forever. What is authentically black? So for those who wanted to cleave to the Wesleyan hymns and just the hymns in the hymn book, uh, mm -hmm. they were accused of being European or Eurocentric. Those who wanted to sing gospel songs and have some drums in the church, they would often be wearing the kente cloths and the African garb because mm -hmm. that was truly African. And literally, yes. there was pointing of the fingers. You are Eurocentric, yes. but you have that's worldly music. Okay, and then yes. in the 90s, yeah. you had the rise of Kirk Franklin. And I mean, Kirk Franklin, he took to, to my generation, he was like yeah. Edward Hawkins, yeah. maybe, with Oh Happy Day. Yeah. Um, and the generation before that was maybe Mahalia Jackson and Thomas Dorsey. But Kirk Franklin really was bringing the worldly music. Uh, maybe let's not even take it to worldly music, let's take it a step back. Uh, the Pentecostal Baptist cogent music to Adventism. And then you had yeah. the rise of T.D. Jakes, yeah. who, I, I mean, I, I don't know what you guys think of him, but he's been a monumental figure in black Adventism. I know that he's a monumental figure just in America alone, but Black Adventism, he's had an enormous influence on Black Adventists and especially Black Adventist ministers. Okay, so this introduced a lot of the sing-songy preaching. Like, I know that sometimes God and the organs playing, that kind of ushered that into Black, and then sometimes the speaking in tongues but the more ecstatic worship. And so all of these currents are, are coming when I'm coming of age, you know, in college and beyond. Now, to go back to the recording, this is one of those recordings, I think, that whatever way you slice it, whatever side you're on, when you listen to it, you say, this is black music. And the, the, the people against the drums, the people that are hymns only, they really can't say anything about it because there are no drums and these are very hemish and Negro spirit. See, the, throughout the whole worship battles, no one was ever against Negro spirituals. Yeah. Those were always acceptable to anybody. Okay. Because they didn't have the drums, mm -hmm. you know, and they really came from our experience. And so listening to this, though, my point is that there's a, there's a little bit of Azusa Street there? I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure. I'll say that there's a, there is slave religion there. And I say that mm -hmm. I get a very Negro spiritual feel. Mm -hmm. I get a very soulful feel from our experience and almost quintessentially black music. And to think that yeah. this was Adventism in the 1920s and obviously before, to me that cast the whole yeah. worship debate 
in a different light. I won't say what light I think it's cast in, but back then, this is authentically black music, soulful music. So this is our Adventist heritage. Love it. That's really, that's great. Thank you, Ben. Uh, let me let me take a little bit different approach to it. Uh, there's a phrase I'm sure you two have heard um, in liturgical studies and church history called lex orandi lex credendi, that we usually translate the way we worship is the way we believe. And it was used in the early church to to say that, well, where do we get our beliefs? Well, we get it from the liturgy. Uh, where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Well, we come to the ecumenical council. Well, Ben, have you been praying? Michael, have you been praying? We all pray in our churches, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, there you go. So we believe in the Trinity. And certainly a watered-down version of how all of those fights developed in the early church. Uh, but what we see in it is, is a reality that for us as Adventists, it's also a challenge that the reality is, is that worship tends to become normative. Even though we think that it's sola tota prima scriptura, the way we worship tends to be how we believe. And so this early period of 20th century Adventism is significantly formative and therefore normative uh, for these black Adventists. And so I see that for pockets of black Adventists, they are being formed in a gospel style. This is their heritage. It's what is right worship. It's orthodoxy. Others on the other side, um, New York or Cleveland or uh, other places, um, in light of the Renaissance, are pursuing this highbrow, high church music. They're doing uh, Rossini, Bach, Beethoven, and this is right music. And it's not all that syncopated gospel stuff that Tinley and Dorsey are coming out with. And this is right music. This is holy music. And so the way they worship has become the way they believe. And so I, I see very much so through this hundred years that the divides are not only situated because of race, but also because of worship. And at the same time, I wish that we could think a little bit broader than music, because what I see is such a unifying Adventist identity in these songs. Um, and this really resonates with me that we have this gospel, and I don't mean gospel music, a gospel message of take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. And this is quintessential Adventism. From the early Adventists, from the Millerites, they are singing this kind of religion, of this personal uh, relationship with Jesus. And then the other one on, on Jordan's stormy banks, I cry, uh, this is looking forward to the second coming in heaven. And so it doesn't matter the type of music that you're listening to or playing in Adventist worship, but that we have this shared identity, love of Jesus, love of God, relationship with him, growing in Christ, and that that Savior's coming soon. 
Love it. Uh, thank you, Ben and David. It's been a delight to have both of you on the show here today. Uh, really quick before we wrap up, though, uh, Ben, tell us about your website. You've got this linked up there. Uh, you challenged me right away. Hey, I want to get this up so other people can listen. And I, once we had our conference earlier this year, I was all good with that. Tell us uh, how our listeners can actually go to your resource, to your website, and be able to hear this again. Yes, if you get on YouTube and you type in blacks, blacksdahistory.org, uh, some people say blacksdahistory.org, some people say blacks the history. Hey, so, <laughs> hey, hey, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to judge you, however you say it. So blacks the history, if you type that into YouTube, you can find it. Uh, Michael, if you all do, if you and uh, Greg do narrative notes or something like that um, for podcast, yeah. I can see the, the okay. exact links because you would have to go there and then look at the videos. But if you type in maybe earliest Adventist recording into YouTube or Google, I, I think that it should come up. And there are two videos. Um, I should probably do one as well, Michael, um, and just have them both there. But there are there are two different videos, side one and, 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 and side two. And so they are they are there. All right. Well, thanks again, uh, Ben and David, for joining us on the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast. And our listeners, keep searching. Uh, and uh, as we keep to, as we keep trying to better understand our Adventist past, thank you. And join us again next month for a new episode. And Jesus Himself said that He did not come to do away with the law. out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it. The Avenus Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Avenus History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Avenus History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Avenus History Podcast. Enjoy the show.